We have said that um, the summer is given over to thinking about worship, and therefore for eight weeks uh, the preachers will be preaching on some aspect of worship. Uh, Each week we will also identify one area of worship in the gathered congregation, that is what we are here, the gathered congregation, and we will talk about how you can more meaningfully be involved in the gathered congregational worship. The other side of the coin, of course, is your individual worship, uh, and you are a worshiping person throughout the week. Uh, Incidentally, these teachings are also available uh, in the article. I don't know whether it's a blog or an article. Are they different? You know, I'm this dummy about modern communications. But every week there's a uh, skewed logic that our pastor Tom writes, and you have to actually subscribe to that, and you can do that on our website. Uh, And each week the teaching on worship will be in the skewed logic. So this morning I'm going to talk about public prayer. Uh, Many churches isolate the various types of public prayer so that adoration, uh, confession, repentance, and supplication are different prayers. In our church, we tend to blend them, and if you're paying attention, you'll recognize, oh, that's your adoration, and we've just moved into confession, and there's some supplication. Not as if there's a right or a wrong way, it's just the way we've developed and the way we do it. So let me talk first of all about prayer from the perspective of the leader, from the person who's standing here behind the podium. I was a seminarian and looked at the professor of homiletics with bemused skepticism and a slight hint of horror. He instructed us to spend as much time on our public prayer as we did on the sermon. I was dismayed because he had previously advised us that to properly honor the responsibility of proclaiming God's word, we should spend at least one hour in study and prayer for every minute in the pulpit. The one great benefit of that was that it made for short sermons. Well, that meant 20 hours for a 20-minute sermon, and now he was adding on 20 hours for the prayer time, the, public preparation, the preparation for public prayer. Uh, and I was critical, but gradually I came to understand the awesome responsibility, not just of preaching, but of praying. I then came across a a saying by Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, and we quite often sing some of his, his hymns, and he defined prayer as done by some work of meditation before we begin to speak in prayer. And that should be true both of the public leader of prayer and you in your private prayers. Let your prayer come out of meditation. Well, that helped me understand that the two activities were one and the same, running concurrently through the mind and through the heart. So as I studied to make rough notes for the first draft of my sermon, I would also be drawing notes for a first draft of the prayer. 
Prayer and word were then joined together in a crucible of meditation, which we might call a molten metal, from which the sermon and the prayer were crafted. And then I noticed that people often commented more on the public praying than they did on the sermon, which was rather humbling, but also very gratifying. Now let's look at prayer from the perspective of the worshipper. How should you react when the leader says, let us pray? An anonymous author wrote, when we pray, there is a clash of arms in the heavenly spheres. Somebody else wrote that the devil sneers at our resolutions, laughs at our programs, and trembles at the weakest believer on his knees. Therefore, when I say, let us pray, all hell breaks loose. The devil comes to you and suggests to you that this is a time to fall asleep. He will distract you. He'll say to you, do you know who that lady with the funny hairstyle is in two, two rows in front of you? He will fill your mind with anxieties and you will go off on a mental journey of your own and be entirely distracted and all over the emotional map because he will be exercising all his power to prevent us from united prayer. Wandering thoughts, therefore, should be harnessed. This is the hardest work that you have, is to pray, which is why it's so hard to do it, isn't it? And it's the hardest thing you do in public worship, which is not spectator sport, but we are all participating together, and you are being led, therefore you should follow. I'm really a latent Baptist, so I do this by saying amen. Sometimes I say it loud or under my breath. I try to agree with what I'm hearing. I say thank you, God. I say amen. Yes, please. Do it, God. And if you're sitting near me, you may be distracted by that. I don't always do it out loud, but sometimes I can't help myself. So you'll have to forgive me for that. But I ask you to engage in whatever way works for you so that the prayer is not some isolated guy mouthing off blessings in front of you, but it is you following and agreeing because you are being led in prayer. Now the other Side of the coin is when I say, let us pray, not only does all hell break loose, but all heaven breaks loose. In Luke 11, the disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus responds in the next 12 verses. And the first thing he says, when you pray, say, our Father. And the pronoun our means that Jesus says, hey, I'm going to join you. And he takes your hand or puts his arm around your shoulder and says, let's go together to the Father. So the Son is active in prayer. In verse 13, the Father responds to the prayer of the Son and his mentee, his disciple, 
with an amplitude of generosity. You, says Jesus, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your Father in heaven. So now we have the Father and the Son involved in the prayer. And what is the amplitude of the Father's blessing to us? Well, regardless of whether the prayer receives a direct yes from God, or whether it receives a direct no from God, both are specific answers. One of the first words all three of my children learnt was the word no, because as parents we use that and God is our Father. Sometimes he says wait, which is the hardest of all, but whether it's yes, no, or wait, he always answers your prayer by giving the Holy Spirit. You give good gifts, how much more your Father will give the Holy Spirit. God is therefore the prime mover in all of our spiritual life and no more so in our praying and the full attention and action of Father, Son and Holy Spirit kicks in because when I say let us pray we have an invitation into the throne room of the King of Kings and we ought therefore to acknowledge this awesome opportunity and respond with complete attention, not to the human leader of prayer in public, but to the divine leader of prayer in our hearts. Let us pray. Your Majesty, We adore you and delight to be worshipping in your throne room. Your holiness, we confess that we love you and wish and ask that you make us more appreciative so that we may love you more. Majestic God, We bring you our embarrassment and shame over the sins in our lives. And we ask not just for forgiveness, but for you to lead us in new ways which overcome those sinful things. Great King, we bring you our supplication. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you will heed the requests of our hearts. And I ask you to make your requests known in your heart and mind, and I give you a minute for that. And great God, we pray for our vacation Bible school. We thank you for Diane Rolfing and her work and her labor of love and all the volunteers and pray that as this hall is cleared for children to hear and appreciate more of the gospel and of Christ, that you will bless the endeavor beyond our wildest expectations 
to bring our children into a saving knowledge of yourself. And now we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the joy of our salvation and all this in Jesus' most holy and wonderful name. Amen. Uh, For those of you who time the sermon, now's the time to look at your watch. That was not sermon. This is. (laughs) I recall as a 10-year-old coming home from the swimming pool in our neighborhood, Uh, And an ambulance pulled up next to me. It was from a neighboring city. And the driver rolled down his window and asked directions to the hospital in our city, which was well-equipped and and well-known. Well, being 10 years old, I was all flustered by the noise and the activity and the seeming, sensing the urgency. I pointed the ambulance in the wrong direction. And I was trying to correct this when he took off with his siren wailing and went in the opposite direction to the hospital. In my imagination as a 10-year-old, I really thought I had committed murder, that there was somebody in the back who may have lost their life because I pointed the ambulance in the wrong direction. I lived with guilt For about two weeks, my mother would ask me, what's the matter? She must have seen the change in my demeanor. And I was unable to speak about it because of the sense of being shaken. Eventually, I burst into tears when she asked me and said I felt responsible for somebody's death. And she asked the circumstances and then took me in her arms and She cried a bit with me and comforted me and reassured me and soothed me. And I then entered into a world of not being shaken anymore. And the difference was profound. We have all experienced that, have we not, with our children or ourselves. We've known where to go for help. And instead of coming to the source of comfort, we have clammed up or even run away from it. And that's basically what the sermon is this morning. So listen to the scriptures and trace the word come and not coming and the word shaken and not shaken. So here it is, Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further words be spoken to them because they could not hear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in 
joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it then that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence, and all, for our God is a consuming fire. May God bless our meditation in these things this morning. The passage contrasts many things, but two mountains are central to the whole picture that has been drawn for us. The two mountains are metaphors symbolizing a world that is being shaken, and a world that cannot be shaken. The mountain which can be shaken, representing a shaken world, is Mount Sinai. It is described for you in Exodus 19. And in the seasons weekly, there's a little piece called Focus on Four. Maybe you've never really noticed it before. But each week the preacher develops some questions for you to Consider the sermon through the week as a worshipping person. And what I've done this week is I've taken the Old Testament references to this New Testament passage and asked you to compare and to um, enrich your understanding through the Old Testament precedent. Well, the first mountain is Mount Sinai. You have not come, he says, to a mountain which can be touched and it's just as well, because this is a mountain that is lethal. It is hideous with the power of God. It has the strength to execute you instantly if you do the wrong thing. It is burning with fire and darkness, with gloom and storm. The trumpet blast is deafening so that your ears ring, and the words are unbearable, not just the message of not touching the mountain, but the message of disobeying the Ten Commandments which were given on Mount Sinai. And even Moses, this man who had met God face to face, said about this experience, I am trembling with fear. It was a do or die covenant. Rather, he says... 
Instead of going there, you are to heed the invitation of God and come to Mount Zion. Throughout the Old Testament, in prophecy, especially in the prophecy of Isaiah or Isaiah, this Mount Zion is referred to as the heavenly city of God, the place where God dwells. When they built the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, it was built according to a divine plan and it was meant to symbolize the dwelling of God on high. Now he takes Mount Zion not as the physical geographical building, but as the heavenly place where God dwells. And he expounds it saying, you have come to the city of the living God. There are thousands upon thousands of angels stacked around us on the bleachers. And they are in joyful assembly with us. We have come to the church of the only begotten Son of God that He purchased with His blood. Where He mediated that old covenant of do or die. He did the doing and the dying. And now we are in a new place because of it. So we are not leaving that behind as if it was non-essential. But we are taking what we learned there and appreciating all the more where we are now because of Jesus, the mediator, who has transformed the doing or dying by his own doing and dying. And therefore we are set free to receive grace. And the throne room, which was a throne of terror and of fear, has become to us through the mediation of Jesus a place where God gives grace. What a contrast. This is where you have come to a place that cannot be shaken. Because it's the dwelling place of God himself. Just to reinforce that we're not turning our back on the old covenant... As he contrasts the two mountains, he gives us a rather stern warning in verses 25 and 27. So he says, don't turn a deaf ear to these gracious words, the words of grace. If those who ignored earthly warnings on Mount Sinai did not get away with it, what will happen to us if we were to turn our backs on the offer of grace? And there is a threat there which we should understand that God has not changed, but our approach in coming to God is different and is filled with majesty and glory and grace. So he follows it up with a wondrous assurance. And this is what he says. At that time his voice shook the earth But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. And now he's using Mount Sinai as a symbol of anything that shakes us. Those are all removed, all created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now, these readers were shaken because of persecution. 
And the letter to the Hebrews was written to them in order that they should not turn their backs on the gospel of grace and go back because the road was so hard, but it was encouraging them that there is no other way than the way of grace and therefore do not be shaken even by persecution. They had seen, maybe some of them, their houses ransacked and themselves expelled to banishment, losing everything. They may have been tortured themselves. Maybe they saw loved ones and respected leaders tortured to death. And therefore, you can understand that they were weighing it up. Is this something that is worth following? If this is what I get for serving God, thank you, but I don't want to serve you. And the apostle or the writer is saying, it's worth it because those things that shake you are passing away in order that the unshakable world of God can be inhabited by you. Everyone in this room has been shaken. Sometimes all it takes is saying hello on the phone and the voice on the other side gives you news that shatters. It may be a doctor's office. It may be someone you love telling you of circumstances that seem unbearable. It may be one of a million things that shake you to your core. And sometimes we get shaken time after time after time in such a way that we also ask the question, is it worth serving this God? If this is how he rewards his friends, who wants to be his friend? And this writer comes and he says, that is all stuff that is passing. And I invite you into the world where those things are dealt with in such a way that you cannot be shaken anymore. So this is a great invitation to you in your shakenness to change your perspective because over here where you are shaken, it seems as if you are in a prison cell and you are surrounded with bars and you are confined and all you can see is a little patch of blue up there and only on a, at a certain time of the day does a thin, weak shaft of sunlight speckled with bars come into your prison cell. And he's saying you can be brought out of that into the heavenly city of the living God. You can have yourself transported from the world of prison guards into the world where there are ranks of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the living God, to the place where God is judged, but he makes perfect those who are imperfect, who are in his presence, where Jesus has mediated, not as the blood of Abel crying out for vengeance, but the blood of Jesus pleading for reconciliation. That's where you come. That's where we should be living. And this is what informs our worship. 
Did you remember that in the reading it said acceptable worship? Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, this astounding affirmation. Do you see what we've got? An unshakable kingdom. And do you see how thankful we must be? Not only thankful, but brimming with worship. Deeply reverent before God. For God is not an indifferent bystander. He's actively cleaning house, torching all that needs to burn. And he won't quit until it's it's all cleansed. God himself is fire. Where do you live from? Do you live from your prison cell? Or do you allow the Holy Father to transport you into this place where, yes, you were shaken, but now you inhabit the place that cannot be shaken? Well, I was going to end the sermon there, but I'm sorry to disappoint you. Because a new thought struck me, one which I've never had before, and maybe it's just because I'm dense and obtuse and I freely confess that. But it suddenly occurred to me that I've always thought about this passage and I've always preached it as worship in the gathered congregation. For after all, you have come to the assembly place of thousands upon thousands gathered in joyful celebration. Well, that's gathered church, isn't it? But all of a sudden the thought struck me, what if this also refers to my private lifestyle of worship and something astonishing happened to my mind and to my spirit because all of a sudden it seemed I should start every day in this place I should not just instruct my own heart and the congregation that when you come to worship on a Sunday, you should be saying to yourself in terms of Hebrews chapter 12, yippee, I'm going to the city of the living God and there'll be thousands of angels to welcome me. But every morning I have a certain routine which I follow, I get up and I take some medications and then I feed the dog and then I make coffee and then I go and sit and it's about a 45 minute process and from the moment I open my eyes I'm saying thank you God for this day and this is what I think it's going to look like here are the things that I don't know what's going to happen here are the people I have to see here are some of the problems I have to deal with here is what I hope to study God just here's my day please please uh, walk with me into this day. And it's a a wonderful way of having a quiet time. I can't stand to sit still because uh, I usually fall asleep or my mind wanders. And the thought came, when you get out of bed, you're not going to take medications and drink coffee and feed the dog. You are coming to the city of the living God. And I thought, what an idiot I've been. All these years I've thought it's me coming to God. But it's God saying to me, come. Come into my presence. And there are a thousand angels all pressing around the coffee pot. (laughs) And the poor dog, he's, he's, he's got a thousand angels watching him eat. Well, maybe he likes it. 
And I think that this is accurate, you see, because he says, give heed to the voice that's going to speak to you from not Mount Sinai, but from Mount Zion. And what is that voice? What would it look like? And it suddenly occurred to me that the chapter heading, chapter 13, shouldn't be there. Chapter 13 belongs to chapter 12. And if I want to know what it looks like to be a person centered in Mount Zion who is invading the world that is shaken and bringing unshakableness to that world, then chapter 13 tells me what it looks like. And it's like this. I I once climbed Mount Whitney and we set off as the sun was rising and just the peaks were bathed in sunlight. Some of them snow-covered and others forested and some bare rock. And as the sun rose, the sunlight crept down the mountainside and soon flooded the foothills. And as we climbed, the sun shone into every gully. And so it would be with our worshiping as a lifestyle. The apostle here says, everything you do is worshipful. But I'm just going to highlight some peaks in the rising sun of worship. And here's what they are. The first one, when Mount Zion invades the shaken world, is be ready with a meal or a bed when it's needed. It's that simple to worship God. Call the deacons and say, I want to be on the list of providers of food. You don't have to cook it. You can go and buy it if you like at Schnooks or wherever and take it around. We're not asking for cooks. We're asking for food providers. You've got a spare bed. Is there somebody who needs one from time to time? The worshiping person is generous. When Mount Zion invades the shaken world, they regard prisoners as if they were in prison with them. This may be referring to those who were persecuted and thrown into prison for their faith, but Jesus takes it all the way when he says, I was in prison and you visited me. In other words, worshipping people are looking out for those who have done wrong. Not to criticize, not to judge, but to give them a hand up and be with them in their affliction. And if you can't visit prisoners on your own, make sure you pray for prison ministries and maybe donate to them. Mount Zion invades this world when we look on victims of abuse as if what happened to them happened to you. So we are looking out for the poor and the needy and those who have been abused Again, not with criticism and judgmentalism, not to tear them down, but as worshipping people to extend God's grace and be alongside them. And when Mount Zion invades the shaken world, as worshipping people, we honor marriage and we guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband because God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. And why would that be? Does he just want to spoil our fun? 
No, because all sex is an act of worship. All sex takes place within the covenant of marriage and the covenant of marriage echoes the covenant of God. And therefore sex is important as an intimate thing between covenant-keeping partners. And by implication, when the sun rises and floods the whole landscape, all of marriage is a sacred place, not because of what I'm getting out of it or putting into it, but because of The covenant, God's covenant. And we are grateful for the gift of our spouse. Mount Zion invades the shaken world by countering the American dream, which is the dream of greed exercised with liberty. And it says, don't be obsessed with getting more material things if you're going to be generous as we have said then you won't be obsessed with hoarding but with giving be relaxed with what you have however much or however little since God himself assured us I'll never let you down and never walk off and leave you and we can boldly quote the Old Testament God is there ready to help I'm fearless no matter what. Who or what can get to me? And Mount Zion invades the shaken world, says the writer to the Hebrews, when worshiping people appreciate their pastoral leaders. Those who give you the word of God take a good look at the way they live and let their faithfulness instruct you as well as their truthfulness. And that will lead you to pray for your pastors as never before, because we all tremble at this very point, knowing that there are times when the truth does not govern us. And so we hope also to be examples of repentance and of poverty of spirit. And he sums this whole thing up. He lets the sun shine on the entire range from top to lowest point of the foothills when he says there should be a consistency that runs through us all. A consistency of grace that begins when I open my eyes and begin my day and it runs through to when I close my eyes at night and say thank you God for another day in your presence. A consistency that runs through us all for you see, Jesus doesn't change. The most bewildering thing is these changeable people And in your workplace, if you're one day being a spirit-filled believer and the next day you're a griping unbeliever in your behavior, it's bewildering. And he's saying, be consistent in your worship because that will make you consistent in living. And that's what worship is. It's being grateful for God's grace. Being graceful and grateful are one and the same things. They come from the same root word, grace, filled, great, full. Worship is gratitude. Worship is grace received, lived out with gratitude. 
and you are to do that throughout the entire range of your life. And so it is that Mount Zion invades a shaken world. And you in your shakenness come today. So let me ask in conclusion, what has rattled you and what has shaken you lately? I had some rattling news this last week. And what a wonderful thing then to have this passage to study this week and then to say, oh, I was rattled and shaken, but I can look at it from this perspective where I am not shaken and where a new sort of confidence comes into your living and your praying. And second conclusion, this says you have come. And it's assuming that at one stage or another, you actually came as a fresh convert to the city of the living God. And I wonder if that is true of you. There can be no more gracious invitation of God. You remember Jeff Mugg started with it. The spirit and the bride say, come. God is beckoning you to this place of grace He's saying, I'm a consuming fire and an awesome God, but Jesus has mediated a new covenant. Why don't you come? And maybe today will be your day of coming. And all of us, I need constant coming because I'm such a dodo. And I don't live this out the way I wish I did. But every time I take a misstep, there's the spirit and the bride saying, come. Come and receive grace. This is a throne where I give, and what I give is grace. So, let us pray.